Okay, let's uh, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we just uh, thank you for your uh, your kindness to us, uh, allowing us to, to come together to to worship you, uh, to just uh, Lord, just to bring our praise uh, up to you, and to be able to study your word, to to learn about um, its history, how you have preserved it through history, and Lord, I just pray that it would, would strengthen our faith, it would um, just build us up, uh, equip us to um, to preach the gospel fearlessly and to, to be ready with an answer for, for those who um, ask us uh, for a reason for the hope that we have. And um, God, just that, um, that these things would be things that would cause our minds to, to think on uh, good and holy things, and that, uh, that for just that all this discussion will be glorifying to you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> all right. So we're continuing our study of how we got the Bible. This is uh, our, our third session on the corruption and restoration of the text of the New Testament. We're specifically talking about that. We will get to the Old Testament. It'll be uh, shorter, which... Maybe that's you're happy about that. Maybe you're not, but um, but we'll, we will spend some time on that, but not this morning. Um, and I, I certainly like as I prepare, I, I more and more realize that like like a lot of Sunday school classes I teach, it's really helpful if you just get every one in order. Um, and I know not everybody's always able to do that, so I hope things don't go over uh, people's heads if they've missed any um, too badly and. Please go online and and uh, fill in the back stuff to, to help you understand what we're talking about. So let's see here. So we have talked about we're still on the historical section. Um, we've talked about the copying of the Bible, and we've uh, we've started talking about the corruption and the restoration of the text of the Bible. Um, and we've we've pretty well covered the corruption. Um, and just to do a little bit of review, we, we've talked about like, the number of variants we have in manuscripts. Uh, we've talked about what types of variants matter um, and what types of variants actually occurred. What, what types of mistakes did people make when they were copying the Bible? And it's the same types of mistakes that anybody makes um, when they're hand copying something, or even if they're, I mean, it doesn't even have to be hand copying. If you're copying in any way, um, there's, there's always the opportunity for mistakes to be made. So um, we looked through a bunch of those things. Um, so we're going to try to dive into uh, the, the idea of reconstructing the text this morning. I know we looked at this last time, um, but uh, this is kind of basically an overview of how it's done. There's looking at external evidence and there's looking at internal evidence. So basically... Um, when people are doing this, um, whether it's uh, scholars, whether it's translators, whether it's uh, pastors who are doing in-depth exegesis, whatever the case, um, even if you're just looking at the footnotes in your Bible, because most modern Bibles are going to have footnotes that talk about these things um, on a, at least a basic level, um, we're going to be looking at external evidence and we're going to be looking at internal evidence on a particular variant. Um, and so you're going to look at well, what's the what's the date? You know, how old is this particular reading? And generally speaking, the older reading is more likely to be more accurate, whereas the newer reading is like if you you know if you go through 800 years of copying of the Bible and there's no evidence that a particular reading ever showed up until this point. Um, well, then it's, you know, it's most likely not going to be the original. It's going to be the older ones that, in general, are older. Now, you can throw a monkey wrench in that because sometimes somebody will, um, will make a copy and they're going off of an exemplar, what they're copying from, that's hundreds of years earlier. So you could have a very late manuscript that actually has a very early reading. So... This isn't like something where you can just like, okay, let's just date the manuscript and that just establishes older is better in discussion. It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, but still, it's a principle that is looked at. Is you're trying to get back to what's the earliest reading. Um, and then 
you know, closely related are the ideas of geographical distribution and genealogical relationships. So the idea of geographical distribution is just being spread out over a large geographic area because copies were taken all over the world. Christianity uh, spread and uh, you know, copies of the Gospels and Paul's letters and all, and all this were just spread all over the place. Um, and so if you have a reading that's just in one localized area, it's going to have less likelihood of being correct than something that you see in manuscripts spread all over the world. Um, and then genealogical relationships are difficult to determine because we have only kind of a fragmentary history of the New Testament. I mean, we have um, you know nearly 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in Greek, but um, there were many, 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 many more created throughout history. Um, and so what remains to us today is just a fragment of what was left. And so trying to figure out which manuscript copied from which manuscript is very difficult. But they have ways that they try to do that, and we're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, but if you can get an idea of, okay, this is, um, you know, basically we have this group over here, and they all came from this same source, and then we have this other group over here, and they all came from this other source, you can start looking at those things and helping to piece together um, what the what the original reading was, especially if you have a, an instance where it's like, well, we have this group of manuscripts over here that seem to be related to each other. We have this group over here that seem to be related to each other. And we have this third group over here that seem to be related to each other. And then we have two of them that read one way and the third reads a different way. Well, we can look at that and we can say, okay, um, it's more likely that this one group that varies is the wrong one because something went wrong here and it just got copied in that group. Whereas these other two, they never saw that variant. And so they just kept going with, you know, with no problem. So again, it's, it's, all, uh, it's all very simplified the way I'm presenting it, but hopefully I'm giving you an idea of the way that this stuff is presented. Um, and we also look at internal evidence. Uh, what would the author likely have written? Uh, you know, and that's where you just really dive into the exegesis. You look at like, okay, what is this? Uh, you know, what is Paul? What what does he tend to say? What's consistent with his theology? All these kind of things. You just look at what what would the author likely have written? Um, you look at what would a scribe likely have changed? Where you just try to figure out. It's like, okay, you know, if I have reading A and I have reading B, um, then I say, okay. Um, it looks like, you know, reading B, he skipped something, where in reading A, he got the whole thing. Um, so you just try to figure out, it's like, what does it look like somebody, the mistake somebody would likely have made? And we saw a lot of that when we went through the types of variants that we have. And then just a general, which reading best explains the other. So if you have multiple readings, you just, you just, I mean, in a sense, you can just go through it and say, okay, what if we say that reading A is original? Um, can we come up with an explanation for how readings B, C, and D came up? Okay, now let's say that B is the original one. Can we come up with an explanation for how A, C, and D uh, were created? And you just, you just work through and you try to figure out what's the, what's the reading that best explains the others. You say, okay. If we say this is the right reading, it really makes sense that this mistake was made to create you know, this variant, and this other mistake was made to create this other variant, and you just work through it like that. That, in a sense, is what is being done. Now, in a sense, this is this has already largely been done. Uh, we have uh, printed copies of the Greek New Testament that where people have worked through these issues and have done their best to come up with the right answer, and then translators will take those and they'll use those as the basis for our English translations. Um, and so we can basically just pick up our English Bible and read it, and we have the results of all this work, and we don't actually have to do this work. Now, when questions come up, a lot of times they'll have footnotes. When you want deeper questions, or you're going to go look at the at the commentaries, and you're going to look at the critical editions of the of the New Testament that are going to help you work through and try to make these decisions on your own. I know that's a whole bunch of information. Any thoughts or questions about any of that? Well, it looks like you're paying attention, so 
I don't guess I've put anybody to sleep at least. All right. Um, now the first one on here is the date. It's definitely worth talking about. It's like, well, how do we how do we date manuscripts? I figured how to operate my computer again. Um, how do we date manuscripts? And it's, it's like, you know, if we have all these manuscripts, um, or you know, did somebody write down? It's like, oh, I I copied this on, you know, January third. Two seventy-five or something like that. You know, it's like we, we don't have that. Um, I, well, I take it back. Occasionally, you have that. There are some manuscripts that actually do provide dates, um, but most of the time, we have to try to figure out when the uh, when the the manuscript was actually copied. Um, the number one we do, number one way we do it is with with what is called paleography. And that's the writing style. That's the that's the way that they make their letters, uh, because they've discovered just looking at manuscripts throughout history that the style that people would use to make letters just shifted over time, and so they can actually do a pretty good job of pinning down a range of when a manuscript was likely copied just by the way that they wrote their letters. Um, so that's the that's the big one. Um, you also have orthography, which is just spelling. So, you know, the spelling of words changes over time. Um, and so, to some degree, you can pin it down just by looking at, well, how did they spell that word? Um, you can also look at the material used. You know, most of the time they were using papyrus um, or parchment. Um, and even then, you know, the earlier ones are going to be uh, papyrus. They were just, that was cheaper. Um, and the, the church was very persecuted and was often very poor, um, and it's only at later periods that you start getting manuscripts uh, from parchment, which was a bit more luxurious and, and more durable. Um, they can even look at things like the ink color. Um, they can look at things like divisions in the text. Um, they're able to pen down that, okay, at a certain point, somebody came up with dividing the text a certain way, whether it's, you know, putting in chapter divisions or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and they can say, okay, well, if, if this exists, then it has to be, you know, this date or after. Um, sometimes we even have cross-reference notes, um, you know, and at a certain point those were created uh, where people would actually, you know, make notes in the margin that would cross-reference other passages of the Bible that were related to that. I mean, very much like our cross-reference Bibles today. Um, so they can date it to some degree by that. And even or ornamentation, they can look at that, and that can give them an idea. Um, now, as you can see, uh, dating manuscripts is not an exact science. There's no way to just, uh, with most manuscripts, there's no way to just say, okay, this was the date it was copied on. Um, all they can really do is just come up with a date range. But they, you know, they, they're fairly confident that they can do that in most cases. Yes. Because as I say, you know, a lot of these same kind of things happen uh, in paintings and stuff too, as well as they're trying to authenticate something to see if it was original. They look to see if it was, you know, the the paints used in those days okay. or the style and things like that too, as well. So, I mean, uh -huh. as as you know, you might listen to this and say, "Wow, that doesn't, you know, sound very confident." But we still do that same thing with other disciplines too, as yeah. well. You know. Yeah, and I have no idea. I don't know anything about the history of painting, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's that is fascinating, but yeah, it's this is this is the type of thing that I mean, you know, it's like we live in the you know in the day when you know there's all sorts of like forensic, uh, you know, it's very popular looking like can can we reconstruct what happened historically based on you know all these little odd lines of evidence, um, and so like in various disciplines they've just come up with like okay here's the things that are indicators. Um, so yeah, even though this might look a little shaky, it's like this is stuff we do all the time in all sorts of disciplines. Um, and um, you know, scholars, whether they believe, I mean, this is this is something that's just agreed upon. Whether we're talking about people who believe uh, that the Bible is the word of God, or people who think that it's all just a bunch of a hooey, um, they're all going to agree with this is a very reliable method for coming up with the dates of names. Yeah, I'd say that paleography is is 
very well documented. Also, mm -hmm. like that's one of the advantages being with the Greek language at least. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament would be a different story, but mm -hmm. with the Greek language, their every geography had its own font styles, had its own lettering mm -hmm. and typesets, and they're they're just so clearly documented mm -hmm. that it, it's not hard to really yeah. trace those things back with a lot of reliability. Yeah, yeah. and we have we have tons of documents um, in Greek that are non biblical documents. You know, yeah. obviously lots of ancient literature, philosophy, you know, even just like tax records and legal documents and, you know, a lot of that type of stuff is, you know, you're is gonna have the dates and stuff on it. But so I mean we've got tons of manuscripts to compare and say, okay, during this period they were writing this way. So yeah, it's it's a uh, it still can't pin you down like exact, but it can usually pin you down to within half a century. All right, so um, let's talk about textual criticism in antiquity. Um, a lot of times people think of textual criticism as something that um, that only happens in our modern day where we're you know, looking at all these manuscripts and trying to figure out what's the, what's the right reading. Um, but in fact, textual criticism is a very old science. Um, one thing that's fascinating is uh, that the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer they were doing textual criticism on that before the New Testament was written. Um, you know, that there were there were you know people that were they were looking at these things and they realized it's like, hey, we got we've got you know variances between our copies of the Iliad, and they were like looking at it and trying to figure out. It's like, okay, what's what's more likely what Homer wrote? You know, they, they were doing that you know before the New Testament was even written. Um, but of course. Um, people did that with the New Testament. Um, who knows how much they did it? Probably a lot. Uh, but we have a handful of just explicit examples that have survived to this day of early Christians doing this. So let's look at just a few examples. Uh, we have Origen, um, who lived from around 185 to 254. Um, one thing I'll note here, this is um, completely unrelated, but uh, you should always remember that Origen is a third-century writer, not a second-century writer. Because I've, in multiple instances, heard people try to say, "Well, he's a second-century writer." It's like, see, I mean, he was born in the second century, 185. It's like, okay, well, how old was he in the second century? You know, he probably wasn't doing any writing when he was 15 years old. So, um, anyway, it's just it's just fascinating to see people like if if Origen makes a point that they want to push back nice and early, they'll try to say that he was second century, but he's actually third century. Um, but anyway, but we see Origen did a whole lot of work um, in terms of looking at textual variants. Um, he's actually famous for creating something called the hexapla, where he puts in parallel, and this is this is Old Testament, but he puts, he basically makes a parallel Bible uh, with uh, Hebrew and various versions of the Greek, and I think he has basically six versions of the Old Testament that he just does in parallel so that he can compare them. Um, so he, he did a lot of this work. Um, there's, a, there's a quote here that can be shocking, but really shouldn't be. Um, he says, uh, the differences among the manuscripts of the Gospels uh, have become great, either through the negligence of some copyists or through the perverse audacity of others. They either neglect to check over what they have transcribed, or in the process of checking, they lengthen or shorten as they please. Um, and so Origen was very aware of the fact that there were textual variants, and he was concerned about that. Now, you, you know, you can look at this two different ways. You can look at it and say, oh, well, you got third century Origen. He's, you know, he's saying it's like, oh, there's already just tons of differences in the, in the, copies of the New Testament, you should be really concerned, but it's actually, it's like we got somebody that's like, that's paying attention. That should actually comfort us. You know, it's like, he realizes that like, hey, some of these manuscripts are just not that great. Um, and obviously he had to have access to some better manuscripts to be aware of that. Um, but uh, it, I, I think it should be comforting to Christians that we have somebody that's looking at that paying attention and not just saying, oh, well, I, I must have a perfect copy. That's just the way it has to be. Um, another writer we have is Jerome. Um, he's famous for uh, 
translating the Latin Vulgate. Um, and as you look through his writings, he sees a whole bunch of stuff that we talk about in modern textual criticism, stuff that we've talked about um, in this Sunday school class. Um, he talks about confusion of similar letters. He talks about confusion of abbreviations, uh, accidental skipping or repeating as people are copying stuff, uh, the transposition of letters. Um, so he, he is recognizing these copying mistakes and is, is writing about it in his writing, that he's aware that these things are happening. Another one we have is Augustine. Um, Augustine, again, writes about this in various places in his writings. Uh, one particular example that you know shows that he knows what he's doing is there's a variant in Matthew 27, 9. Um, it's similar to the one we looked at in Mark, where there's an attribution to an Old Testament reference that if you don't look at it closely, it can appear that it's wrong because Matthew is actually quoting two different prophets um, and he puts Jeremiah as the as the author, even though Jeremiah isn't the person that have the, has the first part of the quote. Uh, it's just the second part of the quote that comes from Jeremiah. But anyway, he's looking at this um, and starts working through it and he's asking the question, well, what makes the most sense in the context? You know, it's like, does it, does it make sense for him, for Matthew to say that it's Jeremiah uh, based on the, the quote that's here? So he considers that question. Um, he considers what the manuscript support is. He just, like, starts going through, like, you know, basically the manuscripts that he had available and discussions he'd had with other people um, about what manuscripts say at this point and discussing, like, what's the likelihood of it being original based on where it's found in the manuscripts, how many manuscripts have it. Um, and he also considers which reading best explains the others and starts considering, well, you know, maybe somebody saw this and, uh, you know, they said, well, it's not really Jeremiah. And so they changed it to this other reading. And so he's, you know, he's considering that as well, that like somebody changed it because they thought it wasn't correct. Um, so we see, you know, Augustine here doing the same thing. He's doing this textual criticism. So we have examples here in the third and fourth century, um, and there's probably many other examples of people doing it that just didn't survive, you know, down to our day, or that I didn't find in my research. Um, so people were doing this textual criticism back in antiquity. So why is that important? Why is it important that we establish that um, textual criticism was being done in antiquity. I mean, it's just it's like, okay, yeah, it's nice they were doing textual criticism in antiquity. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide another Bart Ehrman quote. I hope you guys aren't getting sick of him, but he is kind of the, uh, the champion of the, uh, let's get rid of any belief in the, um, in the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. Um, this is this is from Bart Ehrman's introduction, where he's kind of telling his own personal story, um, and he says, "If one wants to insist that God inspired the very words of Scripture, what would be the point if we don't have the very words of Scripture?" Uh, this became a problem for my view of inspiration, for I came to realize that it would have been no more difficult for God to preserve the words of Scripture than it would have been for him to inspire, to inspire them in the first place. The fact that we don't have the words surely must show, I reason, that he did not preserve them for us. And if he didn't perform that miracle, there seemed to be no reason to think that he performed the earlier miracle of, of inspiring those words. So Bart Ehrman, he's, he's looking at these textual variants He's looking at the, the fact that it's it can be very difficult to try to come up with the original reading. And he's like, well, doesn't that just destroy the doctrine of inspiration? I mean, if we don't have the words of the New Testament, you know, then what difference does it make if God inspired them? What do we think about that? Anybody have any response to that? Does that sound persuasive? Except for the fact that, I mean, what you just stated with these men who are 
careful to examine. Mm-hmm. You know, they they were making sure that we had the words of scripture mm-hmm. throughout time. So this is not like we just waited two thousand years and said, "No, we got to check this out." Right. You know, right. it's yeah. actually been sort of audited mm-hmm. all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. And stuff. So. Well, one thing that I find interesting. Um, let's move on to the next slide here. Um, this is this is a theological question. Now, there's no question. Bart Ehrman is a scholar. I know I'm. I spend a lot of time speaking poorly of Bart Ehrman. Um, he knows textual criticism very well. He's very accomplished and able to get into the weeds and do textual criticism far better than I could ever do. But this isn't really a textual criticism question. This is a theological question. He's asking the question about, like, well, what does this mean for inspiration? And he asks the question, you know, basically, could, could God have done X, right? And do we have unbelievers who um, who raise that type of question? And I don't want to seem like I'm ignoring what you said, but I'm gonna yeah. gonna come back to what you said. So, I mean, are we see that right? Like with like the, with the problem of evil, it's like, oh well, you know, couldn't God have you know made a world where evil didn't exist, or um, all sorts of things where it's like, oh well, it would make more sense if God did this instead of that, and. As Reformed Christians, I mean, we should understand, I mean, could it be that God has good purposes for doing things different than how we would do them? I mean, it's like, when we understand that, like when we talk about the, you know, the doctrine of providence and some of the, um, some of the, you know, the terrible things that happen in the lives of Christians, it's like, oh, you know, couldn't God prevent that? It's like, well, sure, God could prevent that. Um, It's like, oh, I'm still suffering with illness. Can't God heal me? Yes, of course, God can heal you. Uh, but you got to understand that God knows better than us, um, and He has good purposes for what He does. Um, now we're going to talk about this more because I think that there's some great benefits that we have uh, from the way that God has preserved the Scriptures that we wouldn't have if He'd done it in a different way. Um, so that is going to come back up. But I also want to look at the question. What would it look like for God to miraculously preserve the text as Ehrman suggests? Because he's basically got the idea that it's like, well, if we don't, if we don't have exactly every word, or we're 100% certain we know every single word of the Bible, then the doctrine of inspiration is just worthless. So basically he says, well, if God wants us to have the Bible, he should have made sure that we never had any variants. In the Bible, what would that look like? I mean, just think about that. How could how could that even happen? I mean, it's like if somebody's copying out the Bible and they are about to make a mistake. I mean, what? Just like, does God just take over and and you know make it where their hand writes the right thing? Um, I, I mean, I just it's hard to imagine that you know what it would even look like for God to preserve the text of Scripture on that level, on that miraculous level of absolutely no variance um, appearing in the uh, in the Bible. Um, but, but, but to be the devil's advocate, mm-hmm. if we had that, then people would say this can't be true because there would have been differences. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at all these copies and all absolutely. that stuff, so, you know, they would have used that you know, so I, I appreciate what he's saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, it almost sounds like he's not going to believe it unless God sends him an email right. with the text and said, uh-huh. "Hey, this is what I said." Right. You know, but yeah, he needs photocopies of the autographs. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, I mean, even if we had the originals, you would say, "Well, you can't you can't trust that the originals were real. Someone doctored them." Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, there's always an excuse. Oh, yeah. There, there's always an excuse. Um, and yeah, and it and it would look pretty suspicious if every copy of the Bible we had was just absolutely identical. Uh, it's like, how did you pull that off? I mean, that, you know, something, you know, that's that sounds like somebody is controlling the text. You know, it's like, hey, what, you know, what secret organization is, you know, is controlling the text to make it say what you want it to say? Um, there's all sorts of, of things that come up, but I mean, it's just like it would be very hard to even imagine this happening. But then to go back to what you were saying and to what we were looking at. Did the early Christians see a conflict between copyist errors and inspiration? 
know. I mean, they weren't. From everything we can tell, it's like they were fully aware. I mean, especially the ones that were really doing the study, they were fully aware that copyist errors happened. I mean, it's like everybody knew that. That was the way books were written. Um, which actually kind of gets to my second point. Would anyone think this way before the 20th century? Would anybody have a problem with copyist errors and say, oh, well, that means inspiration can't be true? I mean, I don't think anybody could even have imagined thinking that way until we got to the technology of the 20th century where we actually had some shot at copying stuff without having these types of errors. Um, and as Chase and I were talking the other day, um, you know, even there, it's like, even when you're copying and pasting on a computer, you can still wind up with, you know, with copying errors. So it's like, I mean, we're, we're still just not completely free from that. Um, the, the reality is that Bart Ehrman has a 20th, 21st century view of copying that he's imposing back on the Bible. Um, just nobody thought this way prior to that, that, that you know, that that we could have word-for-word word exact copies. Everybody just realized if a book is written, um, copies are made, sometimes you're going to get copyist errors. Nobody ever said, oh, wow, just that throws out the doctrine of inspiration. Now, there is another group that does kind of think this way. It's King James-only people. Um, they want, I mean... Probably shouldn't say it that way because there's a broad variety of King James only people. But a lot of them, it's like they grew up with their King James version of the Bible. And anytime they see any variation from that, it's like, oh, well, that differs from what I was told was the Word of God. And they're just like fixated on this one text. Um, and, and it, I mean, in a sense, you know, if they're at that level, they can't really even deal with the history because. That didn't even exist until 1611. So it's like, in a sense, nobody had the Bible until 1611 if you want to take it to that level. Um, but throughout history, Christians have realized, yeah, we have copyist errors. We can still get a sufficient understanding of what God said in the Bible. It's not really a problem, um, and it just doesn't it doesn't harm the doctrine of inspiration. So, Ehrman has basically just posed a theological question that. I mean, I, don't, I just don't think that anybody would even have that conclusion um, until very modern times. But for him, it's just like it's very, uh, it's very crucial. It's very important. It just it decides the matter. Um, a little later, um, we kind of see where he's going. Um, he says, "What if the book you take is giving you God's words instead contains human words?" What if the Bible doesn't give a foolproof answer to the questions of the modern age? Abortion, women's rights, gay rights, religious supremacy, Western style democracy, and the like. What if we have to figure out how to live and what to believe on our own without setting up the Bible as a false item or an oracle that gives us a direct line of communication with the Almighty? There are clear reasons for thinking that, in fact, the Bible is not this kind of inerrant guide to our lives. Among other things, as I've been pointing out, in many places we, as scholars or just regular readers, don't even know what the original words of the Bible actually were. What do you think of that? You see some of uh, what Ehrman is concerned with? Is he just like neutrally looking at the uh, at the evidence and saying, "Oh, yeah, this really looks like the Bible's not the inspired word of God"? Well, it's hard with the quote because you don't have the context. But you mm -hmm. know, it it <laughs> it looks like he's raising a "what if," mm -hmm. you know, and then he takes that "what if" and makes that a premise of fact mm -hmm. that then he draws his conclusion from. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, you didn't even prove your "what if." Right. Yeah. You just. Yeah. The, I mean, the idea is that the book will prove the point. This is yeah. the introduction, and he's raising the question, well, what if, and now I'm going to spend the rest of the book showing you, that, in fact, that the, you know, that the Bible isn't the Word of God. I mean, it's, as I've said before, that is kind of the premise of his book, is, is trying, to, um, trying to show you that the Bible is not the Word of God. 
But, I mean, it actually, in a sense, it is a legitimate question. What if the book, what if it, what if it does just contain human words? I mean, in reality, what if it does? We shouldn't be following it, right? So, I mean, in a sense, he's right. But, I mean, he's wrong in his conclusions about uh, whether it is the word of God. But we see that, like, his concern is he's looking at modern-day problems. And he says, hmm, I don't really like what the Bible says about modern-day problems. And I don't like the fact that people are going to the Bible to try to establish what we should think about you know, abortion, about women's rights, about all these other things. Uh, I want you to, like, just come up with an answer on your own. Don't look to Revelation for that. Um, that's his goal. Um, as I've said before, he's, he's definitely not a uh, an unbiased uh, person in the way he presents his material, which is, I mean, in a sense, it's fine. Um, but uh, a lot of people say, oh, well, he's a scholar. He's just presenting the facts and he's unbiased. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm presenting this material definitely from the Christian perspective and hopefully persuading people that we can trust the Bible. But I'm trying to give you all the information. Uh, whereas I think Bart Ehrman is more on the side of, I'm going to give you the information that I think is persuasive um, and downplay any information that I think might um, go against my position. So I think he has, a, in a sense, a legitimate question, but I think it shows where he's coming from. Any questions or thoughts on that? Does he consider himself a Christian? Okay. I didn't know. Like, there's those branches of the church that yeah. basically say, "Well, the Bible is it's good. We can read it, but it's just like anything else." And yeah. they they form their own social agendas, and they have the facade of Christianity where they worship and they they keep the culture of Christianity, right. but it's they redefine it as they yeah. desire to. Yeah, I, that's that's where he seems to be coming from. Like. In the way that he presents himself, yeah, he, he's 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 had a journey from being somebody who professed to be a Christian and then moving toward basically moving toward liberalism. And last I heard, he described himself as a happy agnostic. So, so kind of a kind of a strange phrase, but that's apparently his phrase. Um, but uh, he he in no way um, associates himself with being a Christian at, at this point in history. But I mean, he went to he went to Moody, he went to Wheaton, uh, and then he went to Princeton, um, and you know, and I think for a while was like a liberal Baptist pastor. So um, interesting fellow. But he's right now he's he's uh, definitely uh, trying really hard to give lots of lots of ammunition to people who want to attack the Bible. So um, let's talk about not just antiquity, but uh, let's move on to the age of print. Um, uh, big things happened in the 15th century. Um, printing press around 1450, we've mentioned that. So that's obviously going to make a big difference. You don't have to hand copy the, the Bible anymore. Um, fall of Constantinople to the Turks in 1453. Now, that might seem like, what, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Does anybody have any idea why that might be important for what we're talking about? The Constantinople was the center of the church, especially the Eastern Church, mm -hmm. and many of the manuscripts are no longer here because of that fall. Okay. Um, that's, that's true, but also many of the people from Constantinople fled to the West and brought manuscripts with them. And so you have the Latin-speaking church in the West that they've just been going off the Latin Vulgate, and then all of a sudden you've got people showing up with all these old Greek manuscripts. It's like, oh, wow, here's, here's the Greek Bible. We haven't really been looking at this. Um, and this is the time of the Renaissance, and uh, one of the cries of the Renaissance was to the sources. They wanted to go back, they wanted to read the ancient Roman authors. They wanted to go back and read the ancient Greek authors. They wanted to go back and read things in the original and not look at translations. Um, for uh, the longest time, people had not been at all interested in studying Hebrew. Hebrew, that's the language of the Jews. We, you know, 
we'll just go with our translations of the Old Testament. Um, and at this point, you have people starting to say, wait a second, maybe we ought to be looking at the Hebrew. Maybe we ought to be examining the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, so that was kind of the idea that was um, that was gripping Europe at this point, uh, was trying to go back to the sources. And so while you've had some people doing some textual criticism um, up to this point, um, it really did kind of kick off a little bit more um, at this point as people began to make use of the printing press and try to start getting some of this stuff um, more thoroughly examined. Um, now, at this point, we don't have a printed Greek text of the, of the Bible. All of them are still in manuscript form. They've printed the Latin Vulgate at this point, um, but they haven't actually printed the... Uh, any Greek texts. Um, so Cardinal Jimenez de Cisneros, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, the Spanish guy, um, obviously he didn't quite make it to the Reformation. You see the famous day 1517 there for his death. Um, he had a really big project in mind. Um, it's called the Complutensian Polyglot. Does anybody know what a polyglot is? Polyglot is a book that contains multiple languages. So um, he had the idea of putting together a big multi-volume volume scholarly Bible. And it contained, for the New Testament, it contained um, the, the Greek, and it contained the, um, the, the Latin, because that was what everybody used, you know, so you could compare them. And it also had like a Greek grammar and dictionary and stuff like that. And for the Old Testament, you had the Hebrew, you had the Greek, you had the Latin. Um, just this big multi-volume set that was just intended to be. It's like, okay, we don't have a printed copy of the Bible in the original languages. I'm going to put this great big thing out there. Um, so big, big thing. Um, and it was printed uh, between 1514 and 1517. The New Testament was actually the first thing printed in, in 1514. Um, and it was printed in Complutum, which is why it's called the Complutensian Polyglot. Um, and so it was printed, um, and it was waiting for papal approval, and in the end, it didn't actually get published until 1522, just from various delays. Now, while this was going on, there was another fellow Desiderius Erasmus. I don't know how many people are familiar with Erasmus. He's somewhat famous for his debates with Martin Luther um, on the freedom of the will and the bondage of the will. Um, he uh, he saw an opportunity, and, and there was also a publisher that I think wanted the, the financial uh, benefit of saying, okay, well, maybe we can be the first to publish. And so they're seeing this really laborious work going on with Cardinal Jimenez. And they're like, okay, let's see if we can beat them. And so they scramble, and they get a Greek New Testament printed and published in 1560. So even though it wasn't the first printed Greek text, it was the first published printed Greek text. Um, so they succeeded in, uh, in beating them uh, to the punch. And it was just, just New Testament with the Greek and the Latin. I think it's Erasmus's own translation of the Latin that he'd been working on for a long time. Um, but it was really, really a rush job. Um, Erasmus himself said that it was precipitated rather than edited. Um, so he was at, he was at um, uh, Basel at the time. Um, and so uh, for his first edition, he was using the, the monastic library there at Basel. Um, and he had a 12th century manuscript of the Gospels. Um, he had a 12th century manuscript of Acts and the Epistles. And then he had access to some other manuscripts that he was able to do some comparisons and try to make some corrections. Um, and, you know, and so he was doing some textual criticism, at least on a basic level, uh, as he was putting together uh, his New Testament. But again, he did it very quickly. Um, and you'll notice the book of Revelation is not listed here he had to borrow a commentary on Revelation 
and use a Latin copy to assist in extracting the text from the notes. So it's like he's got this handwritten commentary on Revelation. You know, he's got the text of Revelation along with lots of notes about Revelation. You know, what, is this, what does all this mean? And so he had to pull the text of Revelation out of this commentary, which I can't imagine what a, what a task that would have been, especially if you're in a hurry. But he just couldn't get any other copy of the book of Revelation. Um, he just didn't have any access uh, to anything that he could get to in a timely manner. Now, something bad happened, though. The last leaf of that commentary was missing. So he was missing the last six verses of the book of Revelation. Now, what do you think he did? He translated it from the Latin. So the first published Greek text, like he didn't even have any actual Greek. He didn't know what the Greek was for the last six verses of Revelation. He just... Okay, well, here's the Latin Vulgate. I'll translate it back to Greek. And he put that in his Prince of Greek text. So you can see um, it was a bit of a mess as he tried to put it together. Now, he did various additions and made some corrections. Uh, but some of, the, some of the problems that were created, you know, lasted uh, through his additions and other editions of the, uh, of the New Testament. I always think it's just a fascinating story. Um, one of the things, though, uh, that's... Uh, really famous from what happened here, um, and it's a it's a it's a textual variant that's definitely worth talking about. I've got here the ESV and the King James of it. Uh, so this is First John uh, five seven and eight. Uh, in the ESV it says, "For there are three that testify: the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree." The King James has, uh, "For there are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one." And there are three that bear witness in heaven, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now, as you can see, you could look at this and it's like, wow, that's like explicit um, confirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. Um, now, when uh, Erasmus um, did his printed Greek text, his copy of 1 John did not have that. So he put basically what we have in the ESV um, in his Greek text. Um, and this created a bit of a controversy in his day. He printed that, and people were basically saying, well, you're denying the doctrine of the Trinity. You're removing something from the Bible. And uh, so it created a bit of a controversy. Um, and, you know, Erasmus did some more checking. He had more time in his later editions. He was able to, like, get a hold of various other uh, manuscripts or even just write people that had access to them and say, hey, can you go to this, you know, this library and check that manuscript and see what it says there? And he finally came to the conclusion, it's like, we just don't have a Greek manuscript that says this. And so basically he put out the challenge. He's like, look, if you can show me a Greek text that says this, I'll put it in there, but I can't find one. And... Um, Let's see. One was provided. Um, today it's called Codex Greg 61. Uh, that actually had it in there. Now look at the date on that. When when did Erasmus publish his Greek New Testament? You guys remember the date? Five four years, years earlier. earlier. Oh yeah, four years earlier. Yeah. yeah. It's four years earlier. So. I mean, we don't know for certain, but basically scholars are pretty much agreed this was created in order to give one to Erasmus. Um, and Erasmus is like, okay, fine, I'll put it in there. But then he put like an extensive note that is like, I don't, I don't think this is original. Um, but so one was created for him. Um, as far as I know, um, I have the list now of what Greek manuscripts actually have it. It's possible that later research is is you know is more recent than the information I have, but I'll give you the latest information I have. Um, it's also found in uh, Codex Greg 88, which is a 12th century manuscript, but it's written in the margin in a 17th century hand. Um, 
And I guess I, I should back up just a second here and say, if you look up in your ESD, you won't even see a footnote on this. And there's a reason for that. Nobody thinks this is original. I say nobody, but I mean, there's really no chance that this is original. Um, it's, it's just really got no shot. Um, so there's not even a footnote in your ESP just because it's, there's really no shot that this is actually original. Most likely this is the, the type of thing where somebody put it in a margin and then somebody thought it belonged in the original. Um, but we'll, we'll look here, what else we have? Uh, we have another codex here um, that is a 16th century of the Complutensian polyglot. Um, so again, not really a, uh, a credible source. Now we do have one that is dated from the 14th to the 16th century. There's, there's debate about what the actual date is. So we might possibly have one Greek manuscript that actually contains it that predates uh, Erasmus's Greek text. Uh, but if we do, that's the only one. Now, it does appear in the Latin Vulgate beginning around AD 800. Um, so even if we go back to old copies of the Vulgate, it wasn't there in the old Vulgate either. Um, but at a certain point, it appeared in the text of the Vulgate. And by the time of Erasmus, um, it was just like that. People were used to it being there. Um, going back before that, there actually is a fourth century treatise, um, Liber Apologeticus, um, I think is how you would pronounce that. Um, that's the earliest we can find that statement appearing. Um, so presumably it, it uh, you know, it was, it was something that somebody wrote in order to try to explain what's going on in, in 1 John 5, 7, and 8. Um, just a, an expansion of it, a, a theological understanding of it. Um, at some point, it probably was put into a margin of the Latin Vulgate and then wound up in the text of the Latin Vulgate. Um, but it basically had no influence on the copying of the Greek text. Um, so pretty solid evidence that it's not original. Now, it doesn't at all affect the doctrine of the Trinity. You can, you can get the doctrine of the Trinity quite well without it. And in fact, in the big debates on the doctrine of the Trinity, um, they never mentioned this in the, in the ancient church. And you would think if they had this text, like they'd be citing it. It's like, well, how could you deny the doctrine of the Trinity? It's right here. Um, but they never do that. Chase? So the, if, I, if I understand it right, the Latin Vulgate, we have the original Greek text that they created the Latin Vulgate from, Codex Bat Vatanicus. It's a fourth century codex. We do, we do have Codex Vaticanus. Yeah, I, I never that's, what they, that's what I understood they made the Vulgate from, was, was around that time Jerome was using that possibly as, as one of those pieces. Okay, I, I, I could be wrong on that, but like, again, also you have two codexes from the fourth century that don't have it. Mm-hmm. Right. That are complete different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That are comprehensive, mm -hmm. and so yeah, I just think that those also add a lot more weight to say all of these things are eight to twelve hundred years after mm -hmm. the, the scriptures were written, and yeah. none of the early stuff even supports it. That's comprehensive work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really like probably the only reason that this ever even comes up is because of the fact that Erasmus was basically pressured to put it into his Greek text, which in the end uh, caused the problem of it winding up in the King James. Uh, whereas if, I think that if, if Erasmus was never pressured to put it in his Greek text, then it would have been a controversy in the 16th century and then everybody would have forgotten about it and we wouldn't be talking about it today. But basically because it wound up in the King James version of the Bible, then it still becomes uh, something of a discussion in our day. Um, but again, it's like the doctrine of the Trinity is well established without this, and uh, the great church fathers who argued for the doctrine of the Trinity didn't need this text um, in order to defend uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, okay, just as we're wrapping up here, um, can just continuing um, from this period, we have various you know printed editions. Erasmus, he did several editions. Um, you know, he included notes on variants. Basically, everybody was including notes on variants from this point on. Uh, Robert Stephanus, 
Uh, he did several editions, Theodore Beza, he did several editions, John Mill did a, an edition in 1707. Um, these are just um, a whole bunch of people that just continued this now that we actually had a printing press. And um, and what you, you, you also have to remember, it's like, it was really hard to get a hold of manuscripts. You know, people had to either travel around to places or they had to write people that were in those places. Um, and so it wasn't really easy to just, well, we should just sit down with all the copies of the, you know, all the Greek manuscripts and just come up with a comprehensive, you know, edition of the text. It was a, it was a slow process that, that really took centuries as people just began looking at more and more manuscripts and trying to compare them. Um, and developing um, basically rules and ideas for how to do textual criticism. I mean, I've kind of presented it as it's like, here's kind of our finished product of like, this is the way we do textual criticism. This is the way we try to restore the text. But it was something that even though we saw in the in antiquity, you know, people like Augustine and Jerome were, they were doing these things. People have really like systemized it, uh, systematized it and tried to, um, to make it better. And throughout this period, you have that type of thing going on. Now, one of the things that pops up here um, is uh, Johann Jakob Riebach. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce that name. Um, but anyway, he lived from 1745 to 1812. And he was the first person to come up with the notion of text types or families. Now, if anybody's ever delved into this topic at all. Um, I'm sure you've heard of this type of stuff. Uh, people talk about the, the Alexandrian text type, the Western text type, the Byzantine text type. Those were the, those were the three that he presented in his work. Um, there's been lots of debate about what um, text types actually exist. Um, there's been, besides those three, there's people have referred to the Syrian, the neutral, the Caesarean. Um, you know, there's been different debates about, you know, what's actually real, what isn't. And it's all a matter of looking at the text and comparing the variants and saying, okay, we have this group of manuscripts here that they seem to agree on, you know, this list of variants. Um, and so you want to put those into a family and say, okay, they have some kind of genealogical relationship in their textual transmission. There's, there's some kind of common source here that they just because they have the same mistakes in them um, and so they try to group things into different families and this is this is done as an aid to try to analyze the different variants and try to figure out it's like well, what should be you know what what's the what's the proper reading in which were just mistakes and so they use uh, the text types as a tool to help try to do that now, I know we're just basically out of time, but I do want to mention this because it's very related. There's um, a very new thing. Um, it's called coherence-based genealogical method. This came up just within the last few years, and it's largely because of the advances in computer technology, as people are basically feeding more and more of our textual data into computers and building computer programs to try to analyze it and compare all the manuscripts we have. Um, but basically what it is, I mean, it's it's fairly complicated and I don't fully understand it myself, but basically what it is, it's using computer algorithms to analyze the relationship between the readings. And so it's basically just using all that computing power to look at the different variants and try to come up with what's the relationship between them, what's, what's likely to be the progression through the years of of these variants um, popping up. Um, it's still very new. It's something that they haven't even actually been able to get done for all of the New Testament yet. They've just done portions of the New Testament. Um, but it definitely is a different approach than the family approach. Um, it's, it's trying to accomplish the same thing, but it's basically trying to use a computer uh, to do it instead. Um, so yeah, um, that's basically where we're at. I mean, it's again, that's that's trying to look at the genealogical relationships just from a different perspective. Um, any questions or comments about 
any of that. We still have we still have more on this topic, so again, I hope you guys aren't aren't bored by it all. Any final thoughts or questions? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we just uh, we thank you for preserving your word, for bringing it down to us. Uh, that we can trust it, that we can read your word, we can know your mind. Um, we can uh, use it to inform uh, how we should live, how we should worship, uh, and how we can be saved. And Lord, I just pray that, um, that as we uh, just consider these things, uh, that it would just, it just give us a greater confidence in your word and uh, a greater ability to, to defend your word against those who would attack it and try to say that we, uh, we can't know what your word says. Uh, Lord, if we just um, look at all the evidence, you have uh, just done a great work in preserving your word um, in a way that none of us really would have expected um, and in a, in a way that really is marvelous. And so God, we just thank you and we uh, just pray that you would be honored in all things. Pray in Christ's name.